Hey everyone, my name is Lauren and I'm gonna be reading our scripture tonight. So I'll give you a second to flip to Matthew 13. It'll also be on the screen for you to follow along, but I'll give you a second to flip there. All right, so starting in verse 24, um, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up wheat along them with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And now we'll pick up in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom." The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lauren. Lauren works at Chick-fil-A. I was seeing if she would say it. There you go. <clears throat> um, it's, uh, it's great seeing you all tonight. Um, it was a wild time with our, uh, with our host, um, Joel and Ellis, if you were here for that part. Uh, they're a good time. We were having a good time. I'm glad to be with you on a Tuesday. I know the the Braves are rounding out their season. If they uh, if they go like you know all the way, we'll we'll probably have one of those Tuesday nights where they're playing, and uh, and we're here like every Tuesday night, and so we'll we'll have like like a big watch party or something after we get done on a Tuesday on this screen. It'll, it'll be a lot of fun. So thank you for being here. We want to just say we know that this is a mixed group of people. We know there are Christ Covenant folks. We know there are other churches represented. And uh, I just want to give a special uh, welcome to some of you who are on staff at other churches. I hope that Tuesday nights for you in particular are a time of respite and a time when like if the screen goes out, you're like, meh, it's not my problem. Um, if, I, if my chat GBT sermon doesn't go great, like, you're, you know, I don't know if you heard them joke about that. Like, you just won't have to worry about it. But I do hope that, uh, that you in particular um, just are rested and refreshed to go back and do ministry. And we love all of you. I'm glad you're all here. I just wanted to give a special word to those folks. So, uh, hey, we're in the parables, and we're, we're stepping out of the Sermon on the Mount for a few weeks. We're going to look at some of the parables. The parables are some of my favorite parts of the Gospels. I hope that you see, as I have seen in studying this parable, the brilliance of Jesus. Uh, I mean, he's just the best teacher that uh, ever was, and we know he still is. But when he was on earth, what an incredible teacher. Uh, and so 
I hope tonight as we finish this parable on the wheat and the tares that your love for, um, for each other, that your love for what the Lord is doing grows and also for some of you that there is conviction that you're outside of that plan and, uh, and that the Lord will lovingly draw you into his plan. So let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would help us, Lord, as we see the truth that you reveal in this incredible story this parable, Father, would you help us to, uh, to just be reminded that we are seen and secure when we're in you? Lord, would you, regardless of what happened at work today, what's going on with friends or family or roommates um, or bills or, or whatever else, Lord, we just ask that you would give us a real sense of peace if we're in you, that you see us and we are secure in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Lauren just read it. We're gonna we're gonna look at it one more time, and uh, and I just wanna I just wanna look at the first few verses of this uh, this. I don't wanna look at the explanation yet. I wanna look at the the actual parable. So that's starting in verse twenty four. And so here's the parable. The parable is the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and they bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And when he said an enemy has done this, he said to his servants, uh, Do you want, the, or the servant said to him, Do you want us to go and do you want us to pull up the weeds? But he said, No. And gathering the weeds, you're going to uproot the wheat along with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The word of the Lord. And so this this is a a great picture of, of something that seems at first reading pretty simple, but I think as we get into it, it's going to become a little more complex. And I think you'll see it's brilliant in my notes. I have like the emoji with the mind blowing. Um, I was going to put it on the slide, but it was very grainy. Uh, And so anyway, uh, I do think that it's that kind of a thing. And so I, I want us to understand as we get into this, though, like what are the parables and and how do we how do we read them? So uh, I'll just throw up three grammar terms: is a parable an analogy um, or an allegory, a metaphor, or an analogy? And so some people definitely get into these parables, and I think you you have a tendency to do one of two things: you tend to kind of overread them. And that's when you make them an allegory. And there have been some famous people in history, some famous theologians even, that I think in hindsight, we would say, hey, they overread that parable. They, they read more into it than what Jesus was trying to say. Uh, for instance, let's take a parable we're not talking about tonight. The, the Good Samaritan. Uh, even if you like are haven't been in church in 20 years or never, you've probably heard of the Good Samaritan. And so this guy, he's going down this road and he gets beat up and he's left half dead. And two two religious leaders walk by him, but then a Samaritan finds him and brings him to safety. And so you can overread that parable. And by overreading, what I mean is you look at it and you're like, there's something going on here, something real deep. And so what is it? Maybe that road that he was on, like. 
That was the road to hell. He was on his way to hell. And, and the religious people, they're like false prophets. Like they, they couldn't save him. But, but that, that Samaritan, he's like Jesus. And so wait, hold on. Maybe, maybe like the Samaritan is like Adam. And he couldn't be saved. And, and then we have like all of the Bible and here comes Jesus and he's the Samaritan. And so there have been folks that have read parables that way and I would say that turns it into an allegory and I would say that's overreading the parables. Uh, but then you can underread it too. That's what most is the most common thing that happens with parables. And so you overread the Good Samaritan. I mean, you underread the Good Samaritan and all of a sudden the end of the story, the moral of the story is help people that are hurt. And so people do it all the time. I'm talking like not even in the church, like way outside of the church, but especially in the church, but like secular folks are like, he was a good Samaritan. She was a good Samaritan. We have good Samaritan laws, actually, because of an under-reading of the parable. Spoiler alert, the purpose of the parable is that uh, the, 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 the man who was beat up, he was a Jew, his worst enemy is, uh, is uh, a Samaritan, and the Samaritan goes and helps the Jewish man. The whole reason the parable was taught was a man said, who is my neighbor? And so at the end of the story, Jesus says, who was the neighbor? And the guy was so upset, he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. And he's supposed to love his Samaritan, his worst enemy. That's the purpose of the parable. So anyway, help people though, do that. Um, but so that being said, let's take a look again at this parable and let's try to, let's try to read it, not like overread it and make stuff exist that did, Jesus was not talking about, but let's try not to like underread it too. And so maybe the, maybe the best way to do that is actually, what if we just go to the end of it, to, the, to, the, um, to Jesus explaining it? It's awesome when he explains parables. Then you're like, ah, I get it. Um, and so let's just, let's just take a look here. So what you're going to see as he explains this parable is there's going to be seven players in this, in this story. And so he said, uh, verse 36, then he left the crowds, he went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds and the field. And he said, the one who sows, so we have the one who sows, that's one of the players. And then he says, that is the son of man. So we have Jesus. Then he says, the field. Well, the field is the world. And then uh, we have the good seed, and the good seed, that's the sons of the kingdom, aka we would call that Christians. Uh, and then we have the weeds, and then we have, these are called the sons of the evil one, non-Christians. But like it's more specific than that. We, we, we like sterilize stuff all the time. Like, we, like in 2023, we sterilize things all the time. We're like, okay, non-Christian. Is that like a son of the devil? Like, you don't want to be called a son of a devil. Like, nobody wants that, right? So you're like, not Christian. Um, like, Jesus doesn't leave like a middle ground. You're either his or the devil's. It's like one or the other. And so let's just call it what it is. Uh, and so, <clears throat> and then the enemy, we have the enemy. The enemy, oh, that is supposed to be underlined. 
There we go. Sons of the evil one. Okay. And then the enemy is the devil. And then we have the harvest. Am I doing this wrong? Am I doing it wrong? Weeds, sons of the evil one. Devil is underlined. So good. Thank you. All right. There we go. Um, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. There we go. Great. If you're listening to this on podcast, you're going to be like, what is happening? Uh, <clears throat> the harvest, the harvest, that's going to be the end of the age. And then last but not least, we have the reapers who are, we have the reapers who are the angels. And so here are all the players. We have, uh, we have Jesus, that's going to be number one. We have the world. We have the, the sons. We have the Christians. We have the sons of the devil. Um, we have the devil. We have the end of the age. And then we have the angels. So this is going to be how the whole story plays out. So he gives us, Jesus gives us the parts. Now, it's no wonder they were like, can you explain this to us? So we have these seven, these seven things that have been explained to us. Uh, and so... Now we can start to kind of read the parable and like not overread it, but not underread it, because at least he gave us like a key. There's like a if, it's, if there's a map, he gave us a key on the side of it, and so we know that Jesus is going to sow seeds, and it turns people into to Jesus's children. We also know that Satan sows seeds that grow up next to the Christians. These are the devil's children's, uh, and so. Then God one day will send angels and there will be a worldwide judgment at the end of this age and it will be severe. And the children of God will live in the kingdom of the Father happily ever after and the others will be burned. I don't know what I'm supposed to do for the next 20 minutes. That's it. Like, I mean, really, that's like, is that really the point of the story that, hey, Jesus told this like super elaborate story that like, hey, in this world, there's going to be Christians and non-Christians. All right. Like, I mean, like, he's got to be more, right? Like, he's got to, like, there's got to, but that's, that would be an under-reading, but there's still truth in it. Like, in this world, there are Christians and non-Christians, and they will grow up next to each other. But I actually think there's, like, much, much more that's, that's happening here. So let's go back, let's, let's scroll up, let's go back to these verses and let's take a little closer look. So he put another parable before, before them saying, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field while his men were sleeping. So Jesus doesn't sleep, he sows the seed uh, his men, that's the angels, that's the reapers, uh, they go to sleep. His enemy, the devil, comes and sows weeds among the tares and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, let's read it, let's, let's, let's look at like every word here, follow me here. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed? Now this is interesting. In your field, there's like a reason that that, that that pronoun is in there. In your field, how then does it have weeds? How does your field have weeds? Okay, we're getting somewhere now. Like, this is more than just like, 
In this life, there will be Christians and people that are not Christians. So in Jesus's field, how does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So then they go and they say, do you want us to gather? And he says, no, no, don't gather them yet. If you do, you're gonna pull up the, you're gonna pull up the, the wheat with the tares. It's gonna mess the tares up or it's gonna mess the wheat up if you pull the tares. So let's just wait and uh, we'll burn them later and we'll, we'll, pull the, we'll pull the wheat into my barn, my storehouse. Now, it's important to know that as wheat and tares grow up together, they look the same. So in Jesus's field, there's like wheat coming up that the, the folks who are tending the field are noticing, and there's weeds coming up, but wheat and tares look the same until they start to produce fruit. And then you know, oh, that's wheat, and you know, like, that's not wheat. And a tear is actually an injurious weed that when young resembles wheat, which means it actually can hurt the wheat, and, and it's, it's a dangerous thing to have in there. And so I think, let's, I'm going to scroll one more time. I'm going to scroll one more time. Something happens that we get a really big explanation. There's a divide right here at verse 40, from verse 39 to 40. That's kind of the linchpin. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom. What? you got to follow me here. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Time out. His field is also representative of his kingdom. This is a kingdom parable. This is about the kingdom of God on earth. Y'all, this is the church. This parable is about the church. And what Jesus is saying is in his church, there will be wheat and tares that come up together. And for a long time, they will look indistinguishable. Like, on one hand, this is such good information for us to have. On the other hand, it's like scary information to have. Because we want this to be a safe place. Everybody wants this to be a safe place. You want to come in and you want to be able to like lay your burdens down and trust the people next to you, trust the people that are preaching to you, leading worship to you, uh, like all of this. We want, we want this to be a safe place. But what Jesus just said is in his kingdom, in his church, it is under attack. There is spiritual warfare going on in this place. And the enemy has sown in this place we are the gathered body right now. We are acting as church. We are, we, are a, we are the church gathered together. All these little stones coming together as one stone. In this place, in the church of Jesus Christ, there are people that have been sown by the hand of the devil. Imposters among us. In fact, First uh, Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Y'all, that's part of the reason the church is such a mess. 
It's, it's because it's under demonic attack. And think about it. Think about how Satan has had his heyday with the church from, from using the church to support slavery. I mean, think about it. From using uh, the church to go to war with Catholics and Protestants. Uh, think about how, like, woke theology uh, to, 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 let's just get like nuts and bolts. Everyone's a Christian down south. This is a real thing that happens all the time. And, and I think part of Satan's brilliance is captured in this quote that um, I don't have it up on the screen. I'll just read it to you from, uh, from the old movie from 2002, Gangs of New York. There's this, uh, they're like infiltrating the, 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 the system and they're trying to kick people out so they can take over the, this part of New York. And uh, one of the people in charge says, the appearance of the law must be upheld, especially while it is being broken. That is exactly what Satan has done. He's like, let's let the appearance of the church stay churchy and let's destroy it from the inside. And Ephesians 6.12, Paul understood this. That's why he would say things like, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the, uh, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, think about it. Last week, I talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, uh, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we spent, we spent 40 minutes talking about lust last week. And so if you, if you take that idea of lust and how difficult it is to deal with out there, and you come here, and you think this will be a safe place, Jesus has just told us it should be but the enemy is trying to destroy this place too. And so that's why like we went through this whole thing like you come here and you can't stop looking for like Barbie Jesus or Superman Jesus. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we lust along with another pile of sins is in the church. Um, we talked about how this, this generation especially is like utterly and totally sex obsessed and so you think about it, Satan knows that, and he knows that's the world you work in, that's the world you play in, that's the world you live in. And so wouldn't it be smart of him to sow sons of the devil and daughters of the devil in this place to try to let you not be able to shake that? Because they look like you, you look like them, especially when they're young and they're growing up almost indistinguishable. And so we, we talked about how then it's so hard to break out of that pattern of lust uh, because you're like, okay, I want to have outward-facing relationships. I went through this whole progression last week. I want you to have outward-facing relationships, but you try to do that, and it's like really difficult because you're trying to be like pure and follow Jesus and treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. And so then you come in here, uh, to try to keep your moral compass from going off by having outward relationships. And then you hang out in groups of Christians and you do everything together. I talked about how you even shop for groceries together. Like you do everything together and you still can't escape the lust because you've been poisoned by it in the world. And then you find out, oh, the church is like a little poisoned by it too. 
And then, and then you don't date because what if somebody better comes along even though you've got like all these incredible choices around you? And then you have some other folks that are Christians in quotations, like the old air quote, like Christians that are like, yeah, that's right. You'll mess up the friend group if you date. And so like, that's what you say. What you really mean is like somebody better might come along. Uh, and and it, it's just this like vicious, vicious cycle and it's a vicious cycle out there, and it's a vicious cycle in here because we've got counterfeits among us. And so what we're like looking for the hope in this parable. I mean, when you uh, we're, we're in this culture that's super saturated, even more than we know with like lust and sex and those things, then we get to church thinking it'll fix everything, and it should. But when we get here, the true Christians still struggle because Romans seven twenty says that the old nature is rearing itself up in us. But when we have these these so these pseudo Christians that feed the lies we believe, it's devastating, and it leads to a lot of church hurt. Uh, I want to read you, actually, um, can we put up Matthew 7, 21 through 23 up there real quick? Uh, Sarah's like super fast. She can crush this. Uh, I want to read you Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are going to be many who come to church gatherings to stand before the Lord when the reapers come. And they're going to say exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And the Lord is going to look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. And he's going to call them workers of lawlessness. What else is Jesus telling us here in this parable, though? Because it's more than that there are counterfeit Christians planted by the devil in the church. Jesus is telling us that he planted us. And he sees us. And we are secure. There's this overarching sense in the parable that, that the guy who is sowing the seed is absolutely in control. There's an incredible, incredible sense of calm from the one who's telling the story. He knows there's imposters. He knows there's frauds. He knows it will cause strife. He knows it will cause damage to some of the wheat, but he knows the wheat. He sees the wheat. And there's an incredible sense of, don't worry, I'm going to see the wheat all the way through. And when the right day comes, I'm going to gather my wheat to me. It's a beautiful, beautiful sense of peace that he gives. And look, the church will prevail. The tares won't win. Matthew 16, I'm going to take you through a little bit of, of, of Scripture here and kind of, kind of draw this out. Matthew 16, 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Do you realize that no matter how many sons of the devil the Satan tosses into the church and sows those seeds, do you, it doesn't matter how many, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. The gospel will go forth. People will get saved. People's lives will radically be changed. The church will be a place of hope. The church will be a place of life. The church will be a place that people who don't know Jesus will come to and find him. And the beauty is that Jesus will raise up the wheat and he will gather it to himself. Uh, Look, and I know that this has caused some hurt because some of you have dated some tears. Some of you have been hurt by some tears. Some of you work with tears, and you know what I'm talking about. You're like, man, I thought they were a Christian. So we went on dates, and it broke my heart, and I gave pieces of that person, pieces of myself to that person I never should have. You work with people that they talk about what church they go to and whatever else, and you know that they're like the shadiest You know those folks, but folks, the church will prevail. Jesus is strong. He's so kind. He's kind to tell us this truth. He doesn't tell us why, though, that all this is happening. And so this is where I kind of want to walk you through the rest of the scripture, because the scriptures do actually tell us, like, why Satan would do this. Why would he think that he can destroy the church when the gates of hell can't stop what he's doing? Think about it. Like, nobody made you come to faith, those of you who are Christians. The Lord brought you to faith. He can't be stopped. So why would Satan think that he could, like, destroy this by putting some counterfeits among us? I want to just walk you briefly through the second half of the book of Revelation in four verses. Four? That's not four. Four verses. Okay, four, four little parts. Revelation 12, 17. Revelation chapter 12, we get this picture of a woman giving birth and a dragon who is furious with the woman and the child that she has. So the child is Jesus, and this dragon is furious. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What we see is that after Jesus comes on the scene, he knows that Jesus Jesus defeats this dragon on the cross, but the dragon doesn't know he's been defeated. And so he said, fine, I'll make war on the offspring of the woman. Well, what's that? That's the children of Jesus. It's the children of God that have placed their faith in Jesus. So this dragon makes war. Revelation 20, verses seven through nine, shows the defeat of Satan once and for all. You can write that down, Revelation 27 through nine. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, shows this thing called the great white throne judgment, where what Jesus talks about at the end of this parable, it's played out in further detail. There's a judgment for everyone And at the end of that judgment, there's this thing called the second death for all those who didn't know the Lord and who were workers of evil. And then we get to the last chapter, near the last verse of the Bible, and in Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit that indwells in all of you believers, that has sealed you for that day of redemption, the Holy Spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. That's, that's the church, the bride. The Holy Spirit and the church say, come, Jesus. And the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so what do we have? Why does this, why does this parable like, make sense with the rest of the Bible? Because Satan hates what's happening. And he most of all hates Jesus. 
And so what's the best way to get at somebody? Attack their kids. You happen to be caught in the middle of a demonic and supernatural warfare. And you're the target. We are the target. Every wedding that I perform, I did one this past weekend in Houston. Saturday night in Houston, Texas, um, a girl who used to come to young adults, moved to Houston, met a man. Don't do that. They're here too. Um, and so like moved to Houston, met a man, uh, got engaged, and, uh, and uh, I was getting ready to do the wedding. The power had gone off. It was very hot in there. Um, and uh, the bride and the groom were standing in front of me. Right before she came out, I saw a couple whose wedding I did here in Atlanta, sitting out in the audience. And, uh, and they kind of rolled their eyes because we have been at so many weddings together. Afterwards, they said, how far do we have to go for you to not do the wedding? Uh, and I was like, Texas isn't far enough. Uh, and so... <laughs> So we were, we were there together, and they said, man, they kind of said, in a nice way, like as nice as you can say it, like we could probably do the wedding for you, and I was, we've heard you do it so many times, because in every wedding, I talk about the church as the bride and Jesus as the groom. And church, if you're the church, the groom is coming back. The one who sowed the wheat is going to come back for his harvest. He will not be thwarted by any attacks of the evil one, and you can't be harmed unless he allows it. No weapon formed against you can prosper. You're his. And he planted you, and he sees you, and you're secure. People say the church is full of hypocrites. Well, this parable actually tells us why, but also, like, we're all a little hypocritical. I heard a guy say one time, he said, if you knew what I thought, you wouldn't let me preach to you. But if I knew what you thought, I wouldn't let you in. Uh, and uh, like, I mean, we're like, we're all like a little hypocritical, right? Like we, we know that the church is not Jesus. He's not hypocritical. He's faithful and true. We're just trying to be like him and reflect him well. So what are we to do? I think a speed read, do you ever, do you ever do speed reading? In seminary, I read, there's air quotes again, a lot of books. Um, if you read the first part of a Christian book, like in the chapter, and you read the last part of a Christian book in the chapter, you probably got the chapter, y'all. Um, like, I mean, I hate to say that. It's kind of true, though, in a lot of books. Um, so I read a lot of books, but my dad told me, taught me a little bit of speed reading. And so a lot of times you read the first and the end, and you're like, I think I can get the middle. Then you just scan it, and you're good. Um, don't do that with the Bible. But... If you wanted to speed read 1 Timothy 4, this is what you would find. In 1 Timothy 4, 1, the first verse, and in 1 Timothy 4, 16, the last verse, this is what you would see. And I think this is our Christian response based on this par parable. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Therefore, the end of the chapter Keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's not your job to go around spraying Roundup on people that aren't Christians. It's your job to grow. I never, like once a year, I do... Um, 
I do uh, one of these. So here we go. This is my once of year. I call this metal. This is what I think everybody needs, um, an acronym. Okay, I think everybody needs to do these five things. I think we need to move towards the sun like a grain of wheat. All plants chase the sun. What we want to do if we're followers of Christ is we want to move towards the sun. Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, I am not ashamed because I know who I'm believed. I'm convinced that he's able to guard that until the day of Christ Jesus. So he moves towards the sun. I think we expect that Jesus is going to grow me and my life is going to produce fruit for him no matter how many tares are around me. I think we trust the sovereignty of God and that he planted us where he planted us and he sees us and we're secure and we are supposed to be faithful to an audience of one. I think we anticipate, this is a big one, y'all. I wish I had known this a long time ago. I think we anticipate that there will be hurt and messiness and disappointment even in the church. And I think we cultivate a love for the bride of Christ, the church. And by the way, this is what makes church discipline so difficult. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus talks about how if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, and, uh, and hopefully you win the brother over. If that doesn't work, take two or three other witnesses with you. If that doesn't work, take it before the church. He gives this real skeletal outline of what is church discipline, and every healthy church will practice church discipline, and they do it in various ways because it's a very skeletal outline. You have to flesh out what, how that works best in your system, and we do that here at Christ's Covenant, but here's the problem. Jesus told the angels not to rip up the tares. And so we can't rip up the tares either. And so you have to be really careful how you practice church discipline because you, 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 don't, want, you don't want to rip something out of the ground. You don't want to kill it. That's not the point. The point of church discipline is to show someone their sin and they repent and come back. Or if someone's not a Christian, if you find out they're a tear, you share the gospel with them and hope that they become wheat. But I want you to know my, my personal like bent is to get rid of the problem. And so some of you I have been too rough on, and I know that, and I was actually convicted as I studied this, and so I apologize I want to do better. I want to be more, more caring and more sensitive. And I, and I was convicted as I studied this. I was like, man, I think I've been guilty of trying to rip stuff out of the ground before because I want the church to be pure and I want it to be good and I want it to be right. That doesn't mean I can't ask people to not come to young adults. I've asked a handful of men who I thought had bad motives not to come to young adults. And they've pro they proved that they had bad motives. And so we asked them to come, but I never said you can't come to church never said I won't sit down with you and talk with you about the things of the Lord. There are ways to do this without ripping apart people. There are many verses, if you want to see those in my notes, I'm happy to, to share them with you. But I think as we kind of lay in the plane, you want to know, like, so if that verse in Matthew 7, those verses, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, if that's true, many will stand before Jesus and him say, I don't know you. Like, how do I know if I'm a wheat or a tear? Look, if you're a wheat, it's like pretty simple. It's three types of saved. You were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. 
I think this is so simple and so good. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So to put it into more theological terms, you, uh, you were justified, you're being sanctified, and one day you'll be glorified. Has there been a change in your life? Do you want to read the Bible? Do you want to talk about Jesus? Do you want to, do you want to, or, or do you see sin shrugging off? One of the key ways to tell somebody's a Christian is all of a sudden, like, they're like, I want to read this book. I want to just eat this book up. I want to devour it. It's like one of the simplest ways to tell if there's been life change in somebody. That's the being saved. Like, you were saved, Ephesians 2.8. Like, that's like the saved from your sins, forgiven, that's justified before God. But you're the, it's the being saved, the sins coming off, the following the Lord, the joy that you have. There's changes in your lifestyle and patterns that's powered by the Holy Spirit. And you know what? You hope more and more. The longer you're a Christian, you hope for the return of Jesus and the day you'll be with him. That's the glorification. But if you're a tear, there's no relationship. This is just religion. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23? He said, depart from me because I never knew you. He's talking about relationship. There's no relationship. There's no hunger for the things of God. Sometimes there's just a hunger for the people of God. And the thought of Jesus coming again, the hope of glorification, that either bores you to death or scares you to death. So there's one big question left. Why did he let Satan put tares in the church in the first place? Now, as we try not to underread or overread, here's what I think it is. I think if we go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and I paraphrase some of these verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Very similar language to the parable. That's a son of the devil. In Ephesians 2, it says, and we were sons of the devil. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were just tares, showing up at church, growing up in a Christian family, but being dead, being a tear, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. That's the reason we don't rip the tares out of the ground. Because sometimes the Lord changes the tear to a wheat by his grace like that. I'll end with this quote. Timothy Keller, the late great Timothy Keller, gives a quote of what is the gospel. And he says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have not to prove, I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I like this last line, instead I think of myself less. Let's pray together. Father.
you love your church and you guard your church. But Lord, you have shown us that church is messy. And Lord, you've shown us that if you've made us wheat, that there's gonna be struggles, there'll be tears around, Lord. But Lord, you can change a heart and you can turn tear into wheat. Lord, help us to grow towards you and to be strong and bold and trust that we are seen and secure. And Lord, may the tears around us look in wonder at what you have done and may they turn their eyes to you and be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.